So this theme in James that we're going to continue with today, uh, patient trust or trusting patience. I wish I could say that I planned how well this fit together with Advent, um, but I didn't, so I'm not going to take credit for it. Uh, but as we read through, I think we're going to see that there are some themes here that really fit with Advent. And as I've told you before, Advent is a, is a period where we reflect back um, on, the, on the time when the world was waiting for the Messiah to come the first time. There was a world in waiting, there was a world that was a mess, and... and uh, God's people, the, the Israelites, they were waiting for God to send uh, a Savior, a Deliverer, somebody who would come to start to set things right. And so during Advent, we look back to that time of waiting. We reflect on that time. It's a time of reflection and repentance. Uh, and it also reminds us that w- we are now in a time of waiting. The Messiah has come once. He, he gave us instructions. He gave us his spirit. He taught us how to live. And he, he, then he took off for a while, right? And he said, all right, it's in your hands. But we're also in a period of waiting, waiting for him to come back a second time and complete what he began. But in the meantime, uh, what we're going to read about in James is going to help us as we wait. So we're going to talk about patient trust or trusting patience. So we're going to start in James chapter 4. Uh, verse 13, and I'm going to sort of move through uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5 fairly quickly, but, but keep this theme in mind as we go. Here's what James writes. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. James says, why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. He goes on, he says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Merry Christmas. It, I mean, reading through James, uh, you know, James, is a, he was a pastor in the first century writing a letter to, um, you know, Christians, you know, people that were part of his overall scope of responsibility. And some of the things he writes seem kind of direct and, and kind of harsh and, and maybe not necessarily super encouraging, right? Uh, you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That's not necessarily, you know, I wouldn't write that in your Christmas cards this year, you know, to your friends and family. Uh, but... It offers an important perspective, doesn't it? When we, when we consider the overall scheme of life, when we remember that, you know, for as long as earth has been here, we get 60, 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years, right? In the overall scheme of life and eternity, that's not that long. It really is sort of like a mist that just, that just disappears. And so James is offering us some perspective here. And when we think about it, he's, he's talking about this, this idea of pride, that we, we think that we can just plan our entire life. You know, next year we're going to go here, we're going to go there, we're going to make money. We think that we're in control of everything. And, and as, as many of you know, sometimes life just happens, right? James said, we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, which is true. Now, he's not saying don't make any plans, right? But he's saying, he's saying think things through with a little bit of perspective here. Remember that you're not in control of everything that happens to you. And so he's, he's trying to get his, his readers to focus in and remember that each day is a gift. Each day is a gift. We don't know what comes tomorrow. And so often, I know this is true for me, maybe it's true for you, how often does either excitement over the future or worry over the future rob us of blessings today? Rob us of joy today. Rob us of purpose today. How often does, does excitement, you know, we're, we're looking forward to great things that are going to happen in the future, right? And so we miss opportunities today. 
or we're so worried over what could happen in the future that we miss out on opportunities to experience God's peace and presence and joy today. So James says, listen, you're a mist. You don't know when you're going to be gone, so, so focus and enjoy today. Serve today. Don't miss out on what God has for you today because you're so busy worrying about or planning for or excited about the future. It's okay to plan. James isn't saying don't plan, right? He's not saying, you know, just wake up each day without any plan on what's going to happen. He's saying don't let that rob you of the present blessings and joy today. Uh, He goes on to say, uh, instead, instead of, you know, saying here's what we're going to do, you know, this is my plan. He says, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. In other words, what James is addressing here are attitudes of pride and arrogance. I'm in control of my life. This is what I'm going to do, and God's going to bless it, right? I I tell God what I'm going to do, and I just expect that God's going to bless it. Instead of saying, you know, if it's God's will, this is what I would like to do. What James is saying here, he's saying, have a little bit of humility, have a little bit of humility. Have some understanding that there, there's a greater plan, that you are not the captain of your own destiny in your life. Yes, you have decisions that you get to make. I have decisions I get to make. But have a little bit of humility in the process. He's telling us to ask the question, is there a place for God's will in our plans? Or do we simply just tell God, do we just assume that God is going to bless whatever it is that we decide to do? Right? I think this is true for our personal lives. Right? We decide you know, when we're younger where we're going to go to college and what we're going to major in and what, what jobs we want to do. We, we make family plans. right? We make plans as a church. How often do we involve God? Do we say, Lord, what, what is your will for me in this matter? Do we pray about where God would have us to go to school, where God would have us to work? Um, do we pray about where God would have us to go as a church? Or do we, are we so set on, on what we know, what we want, what we think is right for our own lives, for our uh, families, for our churches, that we, we forget to ask, you know, for God's blessing and God's direction. So James says, you know, it's okay to make plans, but, but build some humility into those plans. Say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. I've told you this before. When I pray for things, one of the ways that I often pray, and I learned this from Jesus, right, is, is I pray for what I want. I, I let God know what I want, what I think is best, but, but I try at the end to say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Right, to build in just a little bit of humility and recognize that maybe God has different plans for me and to open myself up for that. That's what James is, is talking about here. It, it, it's okay to say, hey, this is what we think we'd like to do, but Lord, if you, if you have different plans for us, we're open to your direction. This sort of patient trust, right? James says, be, you know, be patient, trust that God will direct your steps. Um, so James says, all, when, we, when we boast in our arrogant schemes, oh, this is what I'm going to do with my life, he says that su- such boasting is evil. And then James goes on to say something um, sort of, it feels out of place, but it, and it's really interesting, but here's what he says. He says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is what? Sort of an interesting use of sin isn't it? We sort, of, we sort of think of sins as bad things that we do, right? Doing such and such is a sin. But James sort of reframes sin here. He says, if you know what you're supposed to do and you don't do it, that too is sin. Now, sin, you know, we often, 
we, we use this word sin and it's sort of heavy, but, but sin really, you know, originally it's just, it's missing the mark. It, it's less than God desires for us. And so James says, if you know what you're supposed to do, if there's something good that you know that you're supposed to do and you don't do it, that's as much missing the mark for your life as doing things that you know you're not supposed to. So he's talking about here what, what theologians call sins of omission. Sins of omission. So how many times, you know, do I, I'll, I'll put this on me, how many times do I pass by opportunities to do good today because of worries or excitements about tomorrow? How many times do I pass by somebody today and I have the opportunity and I maybe have that, that internal nudge that maybe you felt, you know, you walk by somebody and you, you say, oh, maybe I should stop and talk to them. Maybe I should help them. Maybe I should give them a few dollars or buy them a meal. It was, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so busy. I got a lot going on. I'll, I'll, I'll get them tomorrow, right? How often do we pass by opportunities today because we're so focused on what's coming in the future? And James says when we do that, it's sin. It's, it's less than God wants for us in our lives. And so he's trying to, to get us to focus in on, on today, on the opportunities before us as we have them. Because we don't know when we'll get that opportunity again. Uh, as a matter of fact, as, as I read through this whole section, uh, the whole section really feels reminiscent to me of uh, the Lord's Prayer. Right? When Jesus taught his disciples today, he said, give us this day our what? Daily bread. He doesn't say, give us this day our retirement account. Not that there's anything wrong necessarily with a retirement account, uh, but the, the, the idea of focusing on today, the Lord's Prayer really, it brings, you know, we forgive trespasses today because we don't know if we'll have a chance to forgive them tomorrow. Right? I've, I've spoken with people who they've had broken relationships for years, and then all of a sudden something happens, and they never had that opportunity to extend forgiveness to somebody until it was too late. So, so the Lord's Prayer and, and the book of James, it, 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 it gets us to focus in on the fleeting nature of life. So if there's, if there's something that seems left undone in your life today, don't wait another day. Because we don't know what's going to come tomorrow. Your life is a mist. If anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's a sin for them. Now, this is, this is a challenging section for me, right? Because, you know, I'm still fairly young. I've got a lot of life ahead of me, I hope, right? But even saying that, right? I don't know what's going to come tomorrow. So, so how do I live anticipating the fact that, you know, I, you know, I've got kids to raise and a future and all that, but how do I not let all of that rob me of opportunities and blessings today to do good? So James is going to, we finish up chapter 4, and James is going to make sort of a, a harsh statement at the beginning of chapter 5. You, you, you know that there were no chapter uh, breaks, you know, in the original Bible, right? When James wrote his letter, he didn't write chapter 5, verse 1. Those were added later. And so there's a connection here, but we're going to, this transition to chapter 5 is going to get a little bit harsh. And, and I want us to sit for a minute with the, di the discomfort of what James says in chapter 5, because it, it's related to this. If anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. He moves on and says this. He says, now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Ooh. Weep and wail. There's a happy Christmas message, right? You might think, well, I'm, you might be thinking, you know, I'm not, I'm not rich. He must be talking about people who are really rich, right? And, and I'm tempted to think that too, right? But I think about it. In the overall scheme of life across the globe, 
I bet you almost everyone in here is in the top 5%. Now, I know that wealth is relative. I know that $20,000 in Bloomington, Indiana doesn't go as far as $20,000 in some other countries, right, where that would be mega, mega money. But still, if we think about it, if you've got more than one pair of clothes, if you've got a little bit of money in the bank, if you've got more than one pair of shoes, if you have food in your refrigerator, that automatically puts all of us at the top of the pyramid, globally speaking. And I think sometimes I was thinking about this as I was going through this message. But there's so much in the New Testament about the, the problematic nature of wealth, right? Jesus says very specifically, it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And as preachers, right, as American preachers, and I'm one of them, we have a tendency to spend a lot of time talking about what these passages don't really mean. Right? People like me and me will come up here and we'll say, well, Jesus doesn't really mean that we need to sell all of our possessions. Right? We'll spend a lot of time talking about what it doesn't really mean because we want to make ourselves feel more comfortable. Because I think we know, part of us knows that we are in the category of the rich that the New Testament talks about. Now, there are people, there's always people who are richer than us, and we have a tendency to say, oh, well, this is talking about the people who have, you know, one more car in their garage than I do. People who have one more zero on their bank account than I do. But I think maybe we just need to sit with the tension a little bit longer. And here's what he says. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. And he goes on, he says, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Merry Christmas. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now consider this in context of those who know the good they ought to do and don't do it. It's sin for them. Now theologians, they, they disagree and debate. Is James addressing Christians here or, or non-Christians here? And, and really, I think it, it applies to both. And, and what it highlights is this consistent theme throughout Scripture that what we do with our money is a moral issue. And look, this applies as much to me as it does to anybody else in this room, right? Because I've got more than one pair of clothes and more than one pair of shoes, and I've got more than one vehicle, and I've got some money in the bank account and retirement account, right? Now, I'm not the richest guy in the world, but I'm definitely not the poorest guy in the world. And it's a, this, instead of saying, well, well, this doesn't apply to me, and coming up with, you know, excuses for, for maybe why I'm an exception to this rule, maybe I just need to let this sit and simmer in this for a moment. And ask myself, am I really living like I have a concern for the poor? Now, I don't technically have people that work directly for me. I don't withhold wages. But still, are the practices that I practice with my money, with my finances, are they benefiting those who are in need or are they hurting those who are in need? What we do with our money is a moral issue. It's not like we just believe in Jesus so we get fire insurance and go to heaven when we die. And what we do with our material goods here on earth doesn't matter. So this is a, this is a consistent theme. And before we excuse ourselves too quickly, 
we ought to just sit with this a little bit. And, and if it makes us uncomfortable, we ought, to, we ought to explore that discomfort and ask ourselves, are we really living in a way that, do we believe that God will meet our needs day by day by day? So, you know, just sit with it. Let, let James's rebuke sit with you for just a few minutes before you decide that it doesn't apply to you, before I decide that it doesn't apply to me. Uh, so, moving on in James, James switches his audience. He addresses the, the, the rich people in his audience who have been mistreating the poor by their uh, hoarding of wealth. And he, then he uh, switches audience and he addresses those who have been mistreated, those who um, maybe are on the bottom rung of the ladder. And here's what he says, beginning in verse 7. He says, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Be patient. Uh, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rain. He says, you too, just like the farmer, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. Isn't that interesting? How often in our language do we talk about blessed, the people who have a lot financially, materially? We say, oh, they're really blessed. Interestingly, especially in the New Testament, the ones who are referred to as blessed usually are the poor, the hungry, the marginalized, the disenfranchised. Why? Because that's who Jesus says the kingdom of God is for. Right? The ones who have suffered and persevered. I wonder if we have our idea of blessing backwards. I wonder if getting another car in the garage is less of a blessing and more of an obstacle. It's, this, this seems to be the way that the New Testament talks about wealth. And it makes me, as a wealthy, relatively speaking, 21st century, you know, middle-class American, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable because I, I wonder if we've gotten our categories of blessing backwards. Just something to think about. We consider as blessed who? Those who are rich? No, we consider as blessed those who have persevered. He goes on. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about patient trust, trusting patience. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. If you're not familiar with the story of Job in the Old Testament, Job went through living hell. Job went through. He had everything, right? He, he had everything. He had riches and family and land and prestige, and he'd lost everything. And he endured patiently he persevered, and finally the Lord restored to him so much of what had been lost, but it took some time. And this is the example James uses. Uh, and he says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This section, as I was thinking about it, I, if I'm honest, I think it's really hard for most of us who are sitting in this room to really appreciate the depth of what James is talking about here. Because I think we've all had, we've all had to endure some things. Right? None of us gets through life without any problems. But, but for the most part, as white, middle-class Americans, we're basically on top of the social structure. There are people who have more than we do. But for the most part, we've not had to experience 
systemic oppression the way that many of the people in James's audience, many of God's people throughout history have had to. For the most part, most of us in this room, most people who are watching online, if you're online, I mean, you're, you're probably, you're, you're near the top, right? So I think it's hard for us to, to really appreciate the depth of what James is talking about here in terms of really waiting for God to show up and set things right. Now, I know that, I know that there are, you know, we've experienced illnesses and we've experienced loss and tragedy, but, but for the most part, we're, we've been sort of shielded and sheltered for the, from the kinds of uh, uh, systemic oppression and persecution that um, people who aren't white middle-class Americans have experienced uh, both in America and, and around the world. As I, as I preached this message just this last week, there were uh, over 100 Christians in China who were put in jail for their faith put in jail for choosing to follow Jesus. It's just something that most of us don't have to experience. And I think that's why sometimes we, I think we read Scripture as white middle-class Americans, and I think we, we look at these things, and we, there's a part of us that knows that the gospel of the kingdom of God is for those who have been oppressed and persecuted. And so that's why I think sometimes we make up these persecution narratives, right? You may remember a couple of years ago, Christians getting all up in arms because supposedly Starbucks took Merry Christmas off their cups, right? And it's the war on Christmas and we feel like we're being persecuted. Folks, we just don't know. We have no idea what, what genuine persecution is really like. And so I think it's hard for us to really appreciate this, this longing for the restoration, this longing for justice. But, but we can taste it, right? When we go through illness, when we go through loss, we, we, can, we can taste it. And there are exceptions, right? Some people have it harder than others. But I think we need to understand that there are aspects of this that we just don't really get yet. Uh, and, and I think it forces us to, to, to do some introspection, to look inside. And so if you're feeling some tension right now on the inside, kind of like I am, kind of like I have been as, I, as I've studied this, as I've worked through James, I've felt some internal tension because I'm in the same category as, as many of you, right? If you're feeling that tension, that's good. So what I want you to do, I want you to embrace the tension. Because I think one of the things that we're really good at is we're really, one of the things I'm really good at I'm really good at rationalizing things away. I'm really good at making excuses for myself. But the book of James has, has helped me to realize that my excuses don't amount to much. right? So, so James, as we've gone through this letter, it's been full of both stinging rebukes. right? He said some pretty harsh things. It's been full of some strong challenges, but it's also been full of some incredible words of encouragement and words of hope. And we need all of that. We need all of that. And so this, this tension that, that comes here, I think, is a part of what Advent is all about. Advent is about the tension. Right? Advent is about recognizing that the reason the world needed a Savior is because people messed it up. Right? It, it, was, sort of, it, was, it was people's fault. And as we, as we look at our own lives, as we see the need for... Jesus to come back, we recognize that there are areas in our life that we have played a part in messing things up. The Bible calls that sin. But the, the, the other side of that, as, as we've seen, is that God is patient and merciful and gracious and loving, and God in Christ has entered into the world to help us clean it up. 
right? He didn't just leave us to our own devices and say, you made the mess, you clean it up. God in his grace and, and mercy and forgiveness has entered in and, and provided a path, provided a way that to, to make a way for restoration. But we're living in this period of, of what theologians call the already but not yet, the already but not yet. Jesus came. He showed us how to live. He gave us his spirit to empower us. We have instructions, and he's, he's given us the tools, but we know that it's never going to be fully realized until he comes back. So what do we do? What do we do in this period of waiting? While we're here, wait, we know that eventually God is going to come back, and he's going to right every wrong, and he's going to restore what's been lost. But, but in the period of waiting, which is what Advent is all about, what do we do? I've got three suggestions. We trust God. We trust that God will be faithful to his promise. That's what Advent is about. The people of, of Israel were trusting that God would be faithful to his promise to send a Savior, to send a deliverer, to send somebody who would set things right. And they waited, and they waited for a really long time. The time between when the promise was first made and when the Savior came, it was a long time. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back and God's going to make things right, but we trust that God will be faithful to his promises. We wait patiently. We wait patiently. It's a part of that trust. But not only that, we get to work, right? We don't just sit around and wait. That's not what we've been called to do. We, we, we get to work while we wait. In other words, what we do in the waiting matters. And that's some of the stuff that James is addressing here. He says, wait patiently. God will show up. God will be faithful to his promises. In the meantime, though, these are the things that you should be doing. You should pay attention to how you spend your money. You should pay attention to how you treat those around you who have less than you do. You should pay attention to, to the injustice in the world, and you should work to the best of your ability to make it right. We know we can't fix everything, right? We know that we can't fix everything, but we can do something. We can't fix everything, but we can do something. And so I'm reminded of Paul's words to his protege, Timothy, in, in the, the letter he wrote. He said this. He said, this is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. We labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God. Because we believe that God is going to do what God said he's going to do, we work to, to do that now. It, in the Lord's Prayer again, Jesus says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, what? On earth as it is in heaven. And so we, we, we work to the best of our ability to reflect that now. So we... You know, we, we understand that when, when, uh, when the kingdom comes, eventually what Mary, you, you heard about Mary last week in her song of praise to God, says that the powerful will be brought low and the lowly will be lifted up. There's going to be this great equalizing effect. So what do we do now to bring that to pass? And there are things that we're doing, and I know, I know many of you, and I know the things that you do to do that. But So there's this, this tension that we live in, in the, the already but not yet. So in this period of waiting, as we lead up to Christmas, we remember that the faith that we've been given is not just a faith that sits and waits. It's a faith that works while it waits. We've been called to action, but it's an action that's rooted in the goodness of God. It's action that's rooted in the hope that God will be faithful to his promises and that what we do now will not go 
unnoticed. So we've had some some strong challenges from James and some words of hope and encouragement here, uh, both together. And I, and I just, I would encourage you to sit in the tension. And I don't want anybody to leave here feeling hopeless. Maybe you felt some conviction from James. Maybe James has, like, like he has for me, uncovered some areas in your heart and your life where you're like, I, I think I can do better, right? I think maybe I've been missing, maybe I've been passing over some opportunities. And, and if you felt that conviction, that's good. But I don't want you to leave feeling condemned because James also gives us words of encouragement, words of hope. He says that as we do what we've been called to do, we have a God who's faithful to walk alongside us, who will be present with us, and that what we may experience, what we may go through, we know that no matter what, what pain we may endure in the process, that God will set things right. And so he's invited us to partner with him. So the faith that we have, as James has shown us, is a faith that works. And I just pray that as we move into this new year, that will take what we believe, that what we believe will fuel our life. And, and while we're drawing breath, while we have a heartbeat still, that we will allow that spirit within us to prick our hearts and motivate us to serve those around us. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for preserving this letter from James. Lord, it is... It has challenged me as I've studied and taught through this. I, you've uncovered areas in my life where uh, I know that I need to do better. Uh, but, Lord, I know that you're not just an angry judge. You're not an angry judge. You are a loving Father who wants the best for me. And that when you rebuke me, it's because you love me and you want me to experience your goodness and your grace and your presence in a new way. So, Lord, wherever we are, uh, where we've heard this, there are, there are people who, who need the rebuke. We all need the rebuke. There are people who need the hope. We all need the hope. Father, I pray that you would use these words from James, both to comfort our hearts as we remember your goodness, your grace, your steadfast faithfulness to your promises, as well as provoke us to love and good works, to see our neighbors in need and be spurred on to even greater compassion and generosity. Lord, I thank you that you saw a mess that we made. And instead of leaving us to our own devices, you sent your own son into the world to teach us how to live, to take our sins and failures upon himself so that we might offer, so that we might experience the forgiveness that you have to offer and the empowerment that you've given us, Father. Thank you for this faith, not just that waits, but this faith that works. In Jesus' name, amen.